Alrighty, we're back for another exciting edition of Cloverleaf Radio. I'm the host of the most, the king of the quarantine, Jimmy Falcon, and we are being joined again by uh, the very uh, lovely guy, I almost said, I guess you are talented in, in, in your own ways, but uh, the talented David Thibodeau is joining us again. How's it going, David? Hey, good. How are you guys doing? Uh, not too bad up here in Illinois, just getting ready for Dark History and Horicon this weekend. Yeah, so uh, I've been starting all the shows asking people how they got through COVID. You know, what what did you do to keep busy? Did you get sick? Did you not get sick? Were you pissed off? What was the deal? Me? Did I get COVID? Oh, you just anything. How how did you get through the uh, the lockdown and et cetera? Okay, here's the deal. I'm, I'm going to be completely honest here. <laughs> the lockdown for me was great, and I'm going to tell you why. It's like, I, I, I'm in life now, so <laughs> um, I got, I, I went and I, I purchased a really good TV, and I was going to sit there and watch the end of the world on it, basically. That, that, <laughs> that, was, that was my attitude. I would have hated to have been 20s in my 20s or 30s, right. or even worse. I really felt bad for the kids, like the seniors in high school, uh, all of the kids, obviously. But, you know, the seniors didn't get to have their prom. I, that's just like, you know, that's, 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 that's memories of for a lifetime. Oh, and a whole generation's missed out on that because of this. And so many people have died. You know, it's, it's, it's just really been horrendous. Um, but for me, it worked out pretty well. I didn't want to go out anyway. So, right. you know, it's, uh, it wasn't bad. I did end up getting it. What's really, what's really funny is um, I was diagnosed as having COVID. Mm-hmm. I was gonna, I was, I was gonna do an interview. So I took a test. They said that I was positive. So then I, I took another test, and uh, you know, I went, I went to Dallas to take another test. I was living in Texas, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a couple hours away, and that second test said that I was negative. Well, and I had, I've never had any symptoms at all, and I, I've tested positive twice huh. with no symptoms. It's very strange. I, uh, you know, I question the testing a little bit, but. Anyway, I'm good. My mother got it. That was tough. But mm. she was vaccinated, and I think that's what got her through it. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, gosh, I, I've been, I was trying to think about all these, these questions and uh, stuff I've been wanting to ask you. But one that popped into my mind when I was out delivering pizzas, of all things. Um, you know, over the years I've read about, or, and I'm sure you've seen too, about Holocaust deniers, 9-11 deniers, etc., have you ever read anything, met anybody, encountered anything at all that involves with Waco deniers? Uh, just some of the ATF guys. I mean, a lot of them have come forward and basically are talking about, and, and FBI guys, are talking about how they think that, um, you know, that uh, the government made, made a lot of mistakes, but at the end of the line it was his. You know, it's always, the fault is always put at the foot of the of, of the Davidians, of, you know, of, uh-huh. of the group. And um, I had a, well, I had recently had a conversation with an ATF guy. And I did, I've, been, I've been working on a documentary for a couple of years. And a friend of mine interviewed an ATF guy, and he wanted to talk to me off camera. So we talked for quite a few hours. And 
right? I went in saying, listen, if you're going to sit here and tell me that the helicopter didn't fire at the building, then we're not going to have a lot to talk about. It. <laughs> right. And he didn't insist that the helicopters did not fire at the building. And oh, so God. I had to go through all the different testimony of Kevin Whitecliffe, who saw the helicopters firing. I, there was uh, Marjorie Thomas, many of the people saw the helicopters firing, and I saw the evidence of the helicopters firing. So it was, it was an interesting conversation. Um, the fact that they're not willing to admit that really bothers me. It really bothers me. And, you know, of course, they're never going to admit that there were shooters at the back of the building, even though we have it on their own infrared video, clear as day, mm-hmm. fully automatic weapons fire at the back of that building. So, you know, these are the things I just, I, I continue to focus on. And my best hope, I'm really hoping for, A, a deathbed confession, or somebody that was, behind that building that day shooting or somebody that was mm-hmm. on the helicopters maybe finding God or having a religious ex- experience or wanting to get it off his chest and coming forward and saying, yes, we did shoot at people. <laughs> at least, and even admitting there was uh, maybe a gunfight at the back of the building. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in all the infrared I've seen, you don't see any flashes from inside the building or even at the windows, but you see people next to the tank shooting into the building. So, yeah, these, these are the issues. Those are the two biggest things for me. And believe me, there's a lot of psychological stuff that the FBI was responsible for during the siege that uh, is going to be too, too, compl- uh, too complicated to get in into a form of like a podcast. And uh, that's stuff that we've been working on in, in, in a documentary form that I think is going to be really powerful. Well, just from the talks I've had with you, I can tell that, A, there's been a great injustice done uh, to those of you alive and those lives that were lost. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, there was some crazy stuff that happened, yes, but, I mean, uh, if I remember right, you said that some of the uh, agents said you guys started the fire, which to me is just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. They keep saying that. They keep, well, we have... I don't know, what is it, five or six pyrotechnic devices that were found? And, you know, the fact that pyrotechnic devices were found (laughs) in the rubble, I think, is incredibly telling. The government uh, will will say that all of the pyrotechnics were fired into the underground structure. Really? Okay. Uh, That doesn't... Then why is there six of them or seven of them? Mm. Yeah. What bothers me is it's the conclusion that all of the documentaries take. Uh, now, now I, I have to be honest here. The only thing that, and, and let me just say this for that, I said this over and over. It's in my book. My stories never change. Uh, nobody in the area that I was in set a fire. I didn't see anybody pouring in a fuel. Nobody lit a fire. Somebody yelled from the upstairs and lit a fire. Uh, at that point, I did go to the back and I did go to the. Um, to the second story and tried to get to I went to the second story hallway uh, over a catwalk uh, mm. that went over the, the, the chapel trying to get to the kid trying to get to Serenity that would have been in the um, in the, uh, the walking cooler but by the time I got there there was a fireball in that that just went down the hallway it was incredibly powerful I knew I couldn't get into that room so you know by the time I got back it was already really smoky downstairs in the uh, you know in the chapel area that I was in so I have said, Clive has said, people that were down there have said that, that, that nobody has set, set a fire, started a fire. Um, 
one of the survivors has said that, that he heard somebody say start a fire. That's, that's yeah. uh, Graham Craddock, who's an Australian. And I haven't been able to talk to Graham. I heard him in an interview say that. And I find that very troubling. But I, I also can't deny, I'm not going to deny somebody else's experience. All I can do is tell mine and say, I, I did not see that. That did not happen where mm-hmm. in the area that I was in. But I, I find it troubling that Graham would say that. And uh, Again, I, I don't know why he doesn't return my email. So I don't know what's up with Graham. Now, if someone has not heard of Waco, maybe they're too young, maybe they're just ignorant, um, how could you easily sum up what happened uh, without going too deep into it? Okay, there was a group of people living in the middle of nowhere, Texas, outside of Waco, a community called Aspen. <clears throat> it was known as uh, the Branch. The community out there was known as Mount Carmel, but it existed out there for about 50 years. And there was someone named uh, Victor Hadoff who bought the property. He was a religious leader, Seventh-day Adventism, and he branched off from the Seventh-day Adventist and formed his own group called the Branch Davidian, the Branch of Now, when he died, people considered him to be a prophet, and he spoke of other prophets that would come. And basically, the, the thing that's really interesting about the Davidians to me is, is I think this is really interesting, and the fact that they claim a prophet, they claim that someone else will come after them that will have light, that will be the next, that will continue on a message that will be fulfilled, you know, before the kingdom is to be set up. Mm-hmm. So to make a long story short, how this, when he died, it was passed on to Ben Rohde, mm-hmm. who started, he had teaching that built off how this foundation, but had something different. He had a new light. He taught something a little bit different that people accepted him as being the prophet. And then Ben Roden died, his wife took over, Lois Roden, and mm-hmm. she started teaching the Holy Spirit Feminine. So she had her own message, and it progressed. It was a progressive message. And then Vernon Wayne Howell came on board and started studying with Lois, and then uh, he became the next. And he revealed, he claimed that he could reveal the seven seals. And that was basically entered in Genesis to Revelation, and to go through all the prophets, major and minor, and make it make sense, make a story out of it. He knew the Bible like a computer. He knew the Bible like he lived it, and that's what was so convincing about him. He believed 100% that he was the next prophet, the next person to bring wow. um, to bring a message before the kingdom was to be set up. And I guess that's why he's so convincing. It's not like his eyes didn't glow, he didn't use drugs. They call him charismatic. He just understood things. He, charismatic, see, that's a weird word when you're talking to a musician because I played with many lead singers, if you will, that were more charismatic than David Koresh was. David just had a knowledge. And the people around him, a lot of them were quite intelligent. Steve Schneider, Wayne Martin, a lot of the, um, a lot of the students that came from England were studying at seminary schools, and they left their seminary schools because they learned more from David than they had, you know, from other schools that they had been studying at one, two, three years and paying thousands of dollars to go to. They came to the States and learned the scripture for free from David. So those are the kind of people, you know, not all of them. Some of them were simple Bible folk, but I'd say at, at, at least three quarters of the people that were there, there was about 130 that had come, the end, 
were pursuing higher education. So, you know, these these were people that really wanted to know what the scripture said and were willing to spend hours studying it. So it wasn't something where someone just says, just believe in Jesus, or let me show you a couple scriptures, and this is what we believe. It was everything, man. It was every word of scripture from Moses to John the Revelator and everything in between. Wow. And that was the difference between, like, David and any other kind of leader, like, uh, people always want us to compare him to Jim Jones. There's, there's no comparison. Right. It was, it was very, very different. Well, see, what I was, I was just thinking about that, what, what people who would, people would call, quote-unquote, cult leaders, uh, you look at Jim Jones, uh, Marshall Applewhite, I'd even consider L. Ron Hubbard to kind of be his own cult leader, um, but yeah, those guys, and you know, except for maybe Jim Jones in the beginning, those guys to me... Alrighty, while well, we're back, that was a little odd kerfuffle we just had. Where I don't even know where you left off at. Um, <laughs> it was good. I remember it that. It was, it was getting good. We were talking. <laughs> I was talking about how the more that I look at this thing, um, listen, uh, Dave wasn't easy to deal with. Dave knew that he had something he needed to fulfill. And um, I think he was looking for a way out. Mm. And I think two theologians named James Tabor and Philip Arnold offered him that way out via the uh, 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 the Ron Engelman show. And they basically said that if David were to write down his sentencial manuscript and get it to the two theologians, they would disseminate it through the theological world and his message would be preserved and then he could come out and stand trial go to jail or whatever was needed and his, his message would live on and he was writing that he took it seriously he was writing that down it's something that, that for some reason i guess expressed the siege i don't know he never thought to write it down it was something he always gave individually that's how he saw it um but he was doing it you know uh, during when the fire began, people came out. Nine people survived and came out of the fire. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was Ruth Riddle, and she had been working on the manuscript with David, transcribing it, and she had it on an old-fashioned floppy disk, the first seal that he had finished the day before, April 19th, and they came in and started to tear the building down with the tanks and, and, and insert in a, the massive amount of CS gas that they inserted into the building. So she brought that out, and Know, basically, the FBI said he wasn't working on it. He was lying. It was a stalling <clears throat> tactic, and they needed to go in and finish this because kids were being beaten. That's what they said. Which was ridiculous. Uh, it was a blatant lie that they told uh, the public in Janet Reno so they could get a go-ahead with the gas plan. And so, um, so they went and gassed the kids to death and tortured the children with, with CS gas, which is just unbelievable, it's unfathomable, impossible, <laughs> absolutely, <clears throat> Who's, whoever came up with that idea directly put a massive amount of gas into a concrete structure where all the kids are, uh, and, and the fact that that tank driver would follow that order, it just blows my mind, and you know the thing that really bothers me, that tank driver, anyone in the military has to go into a room filled with CS gas. And some of them don't come out of that room unless they have their friends bringing them out or if they have their hand on the shoulder of the person in front of them. How do they expect 
children with no training whatsoever to find their way out of a room that has been pumped filled with CSPI. Yeah, it's, right. it's just that it's a it's asinine. It's 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 an insult to the intelligence of anyone uh, um, um, who believes that they were there to protect people and to save people. And what I was saying earlier is I was saying that it appeared to me that they did everything to push David's buttons. They did everything to prove David's message true to the rest of the group, thus solidifying our faith in what was happening. I mean, you know, you're sitting there reading Nam about a tank, or talks about a chariot with flaming torches, and then there's a tank running up and down the building and coming in and destroying the building right in front of you. You know, that's pretty scriptural. I mean, you know, when you're seeing that happen, that revival is coming to life. So I, I just can't impart to people enough that if you were there and experiencing that, you're reading what's, what you believe, what is happening, you're reading it out of the scripture, okay? And you're anticipating for, in some cases, years, some of the people were anticipating this event to take place. For me, I had just been there a year, solvably, so. But, you know, I, 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 there are certain scriptures I can't read to this day because I see the event take place. And it makes it, it, it it's, I don't know how to describe it. Reading the Bible for me is a very weird thing because I see it. I see the history of Waco in it, and that's so. It's just powerful, and I don't usually open the Bible for that very reason. But I, I think I, I'm getting to the point where I have to start <clears throat> writing. I think a little bit about David's message a little deeper. Uh, that's something that I, not many of the survivors have done. I think Livingston Sagan. It's one of the few that actually has written about his interpretation of David's interpretation of the seven seals. So, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a heavy undertaking for me, and I'm still I'm contemplating it seriously, but I do think that there has to be another book has to be written <clears throat> from, from, from me. Oh, definitely. We'll see. I just had a thought. <clears throat> I interviewed a, a Holocaust survivor many years ago, and she told me uh, she she was uh, she's still going out and giving discussions. And I asked her how you know living through something that horrible. How do you get out and talk about it every day? And she said she kind of made up that she never had lived it. Do you think maybe you have some sort of that in your heart too, and that's how you're able to talk about this all the time? Okay, you said she feels like she had never lived it. Yeah, she kind of she kind of made herself, uh, you know, like she was talking about someone else instead of herself. So that's how she was able to talk about it. No, um, well, a little different for me. Um, hmm, that's interesting. I was it has me thinking of another quote from someone, uh, this is one of my favorite quotes, and I can't remember the individual, but it was the Holocaust survivor. And somebody made, somebody asked him, I should remember his name, uh, this is going to tear me up. Somebody asked the Holocaust survivor once, um, how do they go on? You know, How do they live with, with it? How, how do they go on and have a normal life? Like, how do you go out and have dinner and not have this destroy you? And he said, uh, well, <laughs> things I've ever heard in my life. He said, if, if I were to do that, I would give my oppressors power over me. They've already done the worst to me. They've already done everything they can do. If I continue 
to let them have control over me, then that that's 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 my bad. I, I refuse to give them that space in my head, and that's kind of it for me. You know, it's like I you just have to go on. You have to live your life. There is an, an amazing amount of anger that comes with it that I find very hard to process. I I, I still haven't really. I haven't overcome it. I see you know, the anger is always there. To me, that's lack of justice. It's the anger for me is the fact that all these people were killed, they were destroyed, they were demonized to the point where there's a certain amount of people, probably not as uh, not as large of the American population now because of the series, but before certainly the majority was like their crazy call religious fanatics don't what they deserve. And I think, you know, what Bill Clinton said, if a bunch of religious fanatics want to kill themselves, what can the federal government do about it? When Bill Clinton said that, that was the final world on Waco. And everyone, it's really, it was quite, it's quite a brilliant soundbite. And I'm pretty sure that was probably written by Stephanopoulos. But what it's, it's a brilliant soundbite because that basically gave Americans permission not be mad at the government, and he put all of the blame on the religious fanatics in Waco, okay? Of course, there's more to the story than that, and of course, for me, seeing old Bill say that was absolutely devastating. And then it went on and on. Then, hey, the FBI had a report come out, the Justice Department did the report, they said, our, our report will show that the Davidians beat and stabbed their children in the final moments of the conflagration. Now, the beating, of course, is the fact that chunks of concrete from the ceiling fell in on many of the kids. And I was speaking to Rodney Crow, who was one of the uh, pathologists. He was telling me that many of the children died of blunt force trauma from rocks hitting them, from, from pieces of concrete falling in on them, okay? Blunt force trauma. That's what the FBI and the Justice Department spun into beating and stabbing. That made me, and I remember yelling at the TV. In fact, if it weren't my uncle's TV, I probably would have picked something up and thrown it at the television because it absolutely was a devastating, I couldn't believe they were saying it. And the only thing that calmed me down, and it was a, 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 an amazing moment between my uncle and I, where I was yelling at the television, I was just so upset with them saying that. How could they say this? And he started yelling about Vietnam. <laughs> he was a Vietnam veteran. He said, they did the same shit with us. They lied about what was happening there. And he raised his level to where I was, which was brilliant because it brought me down. And we connected on this really deep level and then came back down together and were able to talk about it. But I had an outburst and he had the outburst. It was like two PTSD <laughs> individuals being triggered at the same time finding a common place and coming back. That was an amazing experience that I don't think I've ever gotten that detailed into, but uh, it was incredible. And um, it's true. The government did it to the soldiers in Vietnam. They lied about what was going on there. They lied about why they were fighting that war. It seemed needless to the people there. Nobody wanted to be the last guy to die in Vietnam. So toward the end of the war, everyone was hiding. No one was trying to fight. They were trying to just get the hell out of there. Anyway. I got sidetracked, but the thing, right. you know, 
Oscar Awakening was absolutely devastating and still is. So I can go out and be happy, go lucky, have a good time, play in a band, have drinks with my friends, do whatever, right? But it's always there. Waco is always there. There were times that I would, well, I was playing in a band every week and I wasn't thinking about Waco. I wasn't giving thoughts about it anymore because it made me so angry. Mm-hmm. And then I turned the TV on and there would be an image of the building burning. And I'd be like, oh, that really happened. That was there. It, it was like a dream, in other words. Mm-hmm. Waco, very much, for me, I can't speak for the rest of the survivors, but there are times where Waco is very much just like a dream. And it's just like, it was, that's while it was just a dream. And there's a scripture that actually says when, when we wake up into the new world, into, the, into eternity, that this life will seem like a dream to us. Very interesting scripture. But life is, <laughs> it's, I think, it, it very much is, is, is like that. I, there was a, a quote recently um, that I shared on my Facebook. Uh, yeah, I still have Facebook, believe it or not. <laughs> and the quote was, was a Carl Jung quote. Um, the question that you need to ask yourself is, what myth are you living in? And that's kind of something I've been pondering for the last few days. The FBI has a myth. The Texas Rangers have a myth. The ATF has a myth. Anyone in the military has a myth. People at Waco have a myth. The entire anyone who has to pay their taxes, that's a myth, right? Uh, Christianity, Buddhism, it can all be considered a myth, if you will. Who knows what is right, right? We all have to tap into something greater. You're either a searcher or you're not. Um, I choose to live my life, but I'm always a searcher. I feel like I'm on the forever quest for the Holy Grail. And I'm not actually looking for a chalice. I'm looking for God. I want to know how come, why, are you there? Can you contact me? Can you talk to me? Can you tell me what to do? And, you know, I never got that from just saying the name Jesus Christ or a lot of um, people who are Christians get really excited over the name or over... That, that never did it for me. Uh, praying is, 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 I don't pray. I have conversations with God. That's, that's what seems natural to me, and I don't know if I'm just a total weirdo or not, but I, I have a feeling there's, there's thousands of people like me. Um, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be taken to any one dogma or any one way of thinking. I think we're given a mind to exercise that mind to the fullest, we should learn everything we possibly can. Like someone asked me recently what I believe now, and I, I, I told them the data isn't in yet, because it isn't. And I don't think the data will ever be, and I won't be until the day that I die. Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, I did want to say before we go, I was curious a couple of things. Um, you know, there's so many rumors out there about Waco, and um, I know that you were married. I've, I've seen it happen that uh, the marriage was during the, you know, your time there. It happened before. Can you give me some kind of perspective since I've heard, like, 30 different stories about the whole thing? Yeah. Uh, basically what happened sure. there is, is <laughs> with a six-part series, they made the sure. marriage thing. We had parties where the group got together and basically hung out and partied a couple of times, not often. But there was never actually a marriage ceremony like was presented in the six-part series. And I'm really honest about this in my book. But Michelle and I were close friends. We were very good friends. And they asked me if I would um, marry Michelle 
uh, you know, to keep her her relatives that weren't there at bay and uh, basically make it seem like uh, Serenity was my child. And I said, you know, I came in very late to this. Why? You know, why would I do that? That's that doesn't seem very honest to me. I didn't I didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I said no at first. I said no. I absolutely refused to do it. And then Michelle uh, just said it would really help her out if I would do that for her. And that uh, was different coming from her than from David. He never forced me. He asked me if I would do it. And I did say no. And then Michelle kind of talked to me. And I said, okay, I, I, I will do it for you. <clears throat> and, I, and I'll do it for the group. I mean, listen, the group is the group. The group, I'm assuming that people don't really get. Some people get this. <clears throat> but, you know, there's a lot of religious people that think, that they are members of the 144,000. It's spoken of in the scriptures called the wave sheets. Those, well, the wave sheets are actually those that gather the 144,000. These are all like really powerful scriptures that many groups have, have found um, <clears throat> a liaison with, have seen themselves as being either the wave sheets of the members of the 144,000, and in a sense, you know, David, David's group is no different because David was teaching the, the, the seven seals was, was has this final message before the kingdom of God is to be set up. That, that is how he looked at it. It wasn't the end of the world. It was the beginning of the kingdom. That was what his message was. And because of that, <clears throat> the people there believed that they were way sheep, that they were the ones that were going to go out and gather the 144,000. Again, not an uncommon religious belief. The difference is we didn't believe that we were exclusive or that we were better than anyone else. And David spent a lot of time humbling each and every one of us, because the purpose of that was was for us to you know to be humble and understand the worst of of, of our own individual kind of identities and kind of like who we were, <clears throat> to prepare us for something greater spiritually. So to I don't want to make this a you know a, a long biblical thing, um, but because the the, the the members inside believe they were members of the wave sheet, right? We believe we were on the side of God. So we were willing to die for God. We were willing to stand up to authorities for God. Right? Um, that's, and that's it. That was our group. That was our family. Those were our people. That was our mission, if you will. We weren't doing it for David. We were doing it for the God of the Scripture. David was the one that amplified and showed us who the God of the Scripture was on a very deep level to the point where each and every one of us that were there had to make a decision to either stay or walk away. And my decision to stay was, you know, about a month after I really started studying these things and learning these things, I decided that I think this is truth and I can't walk away from it. How can I walk away from what I believe to be a message of God? I couldn't. I couldn't do it in non-consciousness and be able to live with myself. So what I'm trying to say here is the people were a solid group. They weren't going anywhere. They were going to stay together. They were going to all go to jail together, or they were all going to die together, whatever was determined by the powers that be. The powers that be had a way out. They could let David finish the seventh-year manuscript. They chose not to. They chose to come in and gas us. They chose to do exactly what we expected from the Scripture, that the that, that the way sheets would be wiped out for their testimony and we become souls under the altar, if you will. Um, now, listen, these concepts that I'm talking about right now took us days, weeks, and months to come to the conclusion of and to see in Scripture. I'm giving you guys a brief synopsis of how the people inside saw the Scripture and saw our role. Okay, 
so it may not make sense to everyone. It may seem crazy to a lot of people, and that's fine. I, I understand that. I'm trying to give you in a few minutes what took me years to, not years, but took me months to, to truly get the concept of. So point I'm making, I said this recently, someone, one of the attorneys said this at one point, um, Waco was two freight trains on the same track headed toward each other. The federal government and David and the people who believed that they were going to be attacked by the federal government. Mm. And neither one was flinching. That's it. The government had their way out when they allowed David to start writing the Seven Seal Manuscript. I wish they would have let them finish. But I am convinced now that that was never the plan. I am convinced now that the fewer witnesses they had, the better. And I, I absolutely believe 100% that that building not surviving has been more beneficial to the government than to the Davidians. In other words, the fact that it burned down and that evidence doesn't exist, that would have benefited us. Oh, definitely. Not the other, not, not, not the other way around. Not the other way around. And uh, before we wrap up, one final thought. Um, I was curious. You might have discussed it a couple of years ago when we talked. Um, but what charges did you end up getting from this whole affair? Uh, I was held as a material witness. I was not indicted. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah, that was pretty cool. But, uh, I'm not really cut out for jail. Oh, no, I wouldn't be either. But, but at, the, at the same time, I was willing. I was willing to do whatever they demanded of me. Wow. Well, I will, uh, I'll see you Saturday, Dark History and HorrorCon. It's going to be awesome to see you again, and I think it's going to be a great time. Me too. I'm really looking forward to it, man. And, Remember, uh, I owe you a beer. Yeah, sounds good, man. Sorry about the hiccup a little bit ago. Hey, no problem. I had one too, so it's all good. All righty. It's really nice talking to you, man. I it's it. always nice talking to you too, David. Enjoy the rest of your night. Thanks, buddy. Take care. All righty. All righty, guys. Big thanks to David Thibodeau. I, you know, I, I'm gonna try to get Brian Ward on before Saturday. Uh, we talked a little today. Uh, trying to iron out a time, date, etc. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> excuse me, if we don't talk again, uh, Dark History and Horror Con, Horror Con, Horror Con, is this Saturday, October 23rd, 2021, at the iHotel Conference Center in Champaign. Uh, you can find more info, guests, up-to-date vendors, ticket information by uh, looking up Dark History and Horror Con on Facebook. It'll be really nice seeing my con fam again. And we hope to see you guys there as well. Thank you everybody for listening. Have a great night.